Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. All right, so we'll continue with our study through the book of Genesis. It's what we're doing on Wednesday night, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship you once again in a corporate manner. And Lord, we do pray uh, that you would just help us, Lord, to see things maybe we haven't seen before in your word. And so we pray for fresh insight. We pray for greater understanding of your word. We pray overall to get to know you better. And that through your spirit, you'll help us to apply your word to our lives. So, Father God, I pray for a timely word to share. And I pray for the gift of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 through 19. So once again, that's Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. And the title for this study is The Lord Will Provide. The Lord Will Provide. And so between chapters 21 and 22, uh, we are not sure of the amount of time that have passed. Uh, but what we do know is that Abraham is well over 100 years old at this time. And even at his old age, up in his elderly years, God is still teaching him some things. And we're going to see that in Genesis 22. And so we're going to look at verse 1 and we're going to begin uh, our journey tonight to to see what Abraham learns. And as he learns uh, what God is going to teach him, my prayer is that the Lord will reveal a timely word to us as well. Something we need to hear Right now and right here. In verse 1 of Genesis 22, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And so the faith and commitment of Abraham was now about to be tested. The King James Version says that God did tempt Abraham. But just to clarify what the King James Version said, it means that he tested him. And so when God tests us, he wants to bring out the best in us. And just so we're all clear, God does not tempt us to sin according to James. The enemy, the devil, he wants to tempt us to sin. But God, he tests us to bring out the best in us. And so the first reference I have is first Peter chapter one. And we're going to look at verses six through nine. So first Peter uh, chapter one. Verses six through nine. It says in this, you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more 
precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he returns for his church, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so God, yes, he does test the genuineness of our faith. He wants, once again, to bring out the best in us. But on the other hand, the enemy, the devil, demons, they want us to fail. They want to tempt us to bring out the worst in us. See, the devil can't, they can't steal our salvation. They can't cause us to lose our salvation for those of us who are truly saved. But he can ruin testimonies. So the enemy wants us to fail. But once again, God wants to bring out the best in you. In verse 2, it says, Then he said, Now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah or the region of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so as we uh, go through Genesis 22, looking at verses 1 through 19, I just want to give you a heads up uh, that we're going to see some parallels between Abraham and God the Father and between Isaac and God the Son, Jesus Christ. So we're going to see those parallels. And so I'm going to try to point those out as we move through this study. And so um, we're going to start with the first parallel. And first of all, what we see is that Isaac is called Abraham's only son. He's called his only son. However, we know, and then of course, God knows about another son that Abraham had with Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah. His name was Ishmael. He is older than Isaac, but yet and still God says, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. And so why is Isaac referred to as Abraham's only son? Well, first of all, Isaac is the only son who was still living with Abraham because uh, Ishmael and his mother Hagar were sent away by Abraham at Sarah, his wife's request. Another thing. That I want to point out of why he's referred to as Abraham's only son is that Isaac is Abraham's only son of promise. Therefore, Isaac is Abraham's legal heir, the only son of promise, the, the son that God, the father or God had promised to both him and his wife, Sarah. And furthermore, Ishmael came from human effort. Because a God, quote unquote, was taken too long and, and Sarah, she was barren at the time and she just uh, didn't think God was moving fast enough. And so she began to think of other ideas. And so uh, she brought Hagar, her maidservant, into the picture and gave her to Abraham, her husband, and he had a baby with her. But but he was the son of the flesh, speaking of Ishmael. And so Ishmael 
came from human effort, a son of the flesh. And so spiritually speaking, God does not recognize or reward works of the flesh. Another reason Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only son. And then the fourth reason is that uh, God is using Abraham and Isaac in order to paint a picture of what's coming ahead. And what is coming ahead is that God the Father is giving Jesus as a substitutionary atonement. And so we look back in the past, we know that Jesus already died on the cross uh, on Calvary, on that hill. But from this point, it's looking forward to that substitutionary atonement. And so God is going to use Abraham and Isaac to paint this prophetic picture. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And so when we think about Isaac being called the only begotten son, and in Greek it's, it's monogamous, it's the unique son. When we think about that, we know that is applied to Jesus because Jesus is referred to, for example, in John three sixteen as the only begotten son of the father. And so you see that first parallel there between Isaac and Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, a second parallel uh, between Isaac and uh, Jesus that I'm going to point out is, first of all, Isaac is referred to as the son that Abraham loves, the son that Abraham loves. And by the way, uh, because I try to uh, point out the first mention of certain words in the Bible, I do want to point out that this is the first mention of the word love in the entire Bible. But I want you to notice that that the word love is actually used here in the context of a father's love for his son. And so the very first use of the word love is in the context of Abraham loving his son. And so the picture is being painted here because we know that in the New Testament, we find out that God, the father, loves the son Jesus. For example, at Jesus's baptism, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so you're seeing these parallels. They're coming out. Once again, God is painting this prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the future, at least the future from this point. But then number three, another parallel is that I want to point out is that Abraham was to take Isaac to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Now, when we talk about a burnt offering, it's an offering that is totally consumed by the flames. And so the sacrifice was killed first, would be killed first, and then it would just be engulfed in the fire. And and the entire sacrifice would, would just, like I said, be burned up, go up in smoke. And so uh, the burnt offering represented total consecration to God or total setting apart to God. And so Abraham was to take his son to this land of Moriah. 
And this area, Moriah, later was to become Jerusalem and also the site of King Solomon's temple. And King Solomon, by the way, is the son of the famous King David. And Moriah, by the, by the way, speaking of this mountain, it is on the eastern edge of Jerusalem on which this temple is built. In fact, it's a, it's a ridge of mountains in Jerusalem. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, as well as in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the Bible tells us that David, King David, numbered the people of Judah and the people of Israel. The Judah, Judah being the, the, the kingdom of the, of the south and, and, and Israel being the northern kingdom. But they were together at this point. They were united at this point. But, but he numbered the people in Judah and Israel. And the Bible tells us that the Lord was not pleased with David doing that. And David, of course, understood that he sinned because the Bible says that he was condemned in his heart and he confessed his sin and he repented of that. And so this is an example of a man after God's own heart. Not that he never made a mistake, not that he never sinned, but but he was humble enough to confess his sins and repent when he sinned. And so the Bible tells us that because of that, even though he had confessed and repented, there was still a consequence that was going to fall upon him and upon uh, the people in Israel. And it fell upon them in the form of a plague that God had sent. And the scriptures tell us in Second Samuel 24 uh, that as the angel, God's angel, was going through, and, and, and of course he was... Um, you know, carrying out God's work, his, his consequences, his, his judgment upon Israel. This angel came and he stood he, midair and he had and it had his sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And at that point, the Lord had told the angel to stop that. That's enough. And this angel, the Bible said, was near this threshing floor of Arauna or Ornan. And Ornan was a Jebusite. He lived in Jerusalem. And then David was commanded to set up or, uh, or to erect an altar on that threshing floor in Jerusalem. And so David bought it from Ornan or Arauna, depending on uh, which set of scriptures you're reading. And so after he built that altar, on this threshing floor of Arauna or Ornan, he offered these burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And then the Bible says that the Lord had caused the plague to, to stop. And on that place that David purchased and erected that altar, you know, on the threshing floor of Arauna, that is where Solomon's temple was built. The second Chronicles three, one says now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. And here's our here's our mountain here on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so some Bible scholars believe that Calvary, uh, where Jesus was crucified, also no, known as Golgotha, a place of the skull, that's what it means, that it is located on the crest or peak, the highest point of Mount Moriah. 
And that is located at the north of the Temple Mount, of the temple area. This is where they believe Jesus was crucified. Another Bible scholar says that Calvary, where our Lord or Savior suffered, was either a part of this mount or very near unto it. And so we see these parallels that that both Isaac and Jesus were sacrificed in the same place. And we, of course, we know Isaac wasn't sacrificed all the way. We, we're going to we're going to see that. And so spoiler alert, he's not really going to be sacrificed. He's not going to die. But Jesus, of course, would be. But we see the parallel as far as location in the land of Moriah, perhaps even on that same peak. So um, you already read it before, so that's not really a spoiler alert. But maybe some of you, that's new for some of you anyway. Verse 3. <laughs> so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And he took two of his young men or these male servants with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse four. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men or these young servants, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. And so here in verse five. We see that Isaac is called a lad by his father, but really he could be about 20 years old at this point. In fact, some Bible teachers believe that he could be between the ages of 20 and 30. But then you have some Bible scholars believe he could be in his teens. And so I wanted to share all of that with you because I don't want you to be dogmatic. And I don't want to be dogmatic about the age because I wasn't there. But just because he's called a lad, and here's the point, doesn't mean he was some little boy. Like I said, he can be between 20 and 30 years old. And so I just wanted, I want you to keep that in mind as you continue to see this story unfold. But but as we go through these scriptures, I do want to be responsible and point out another first mention alert. And so I want to share with you that in verse five, you see the word worship. And that is the first time in the Bible that the word worship is used in reference to God. And the Hebrew word behind worship in this verse, it means To bow down. And so we're going to see Abraham and Isaac bow down in their hearts to God as they go up this mountain and worship. But one thing that's really interesting about this verse here, as we look at verse five, is that you see that Abraham expected Isaac and him to come back and meet the young men. Now, Abraham is told to sacrifice him. And at this point, he's thinking that he's going to carry out the act. He has it in his mind that he's going to carry out this act of offering his son as a burnt offering. But yet and still, he says that that Isaac and I, we're going to come back to you after we go yonder and worship. Very interesting. This shows that Abraham trusted God to to raise up Isaac if necessary in order to keep his promise to Abraham. So in other words, Abraham is like, wait a minute, God 
promised me that I would have this son. And that through this son, the covenant and the promises are going to flow. In fact, that it's in his seed that it's in Isaac that my seed will be counted. And so Abraham, knowing all this, knowing what God told him. He held on to that word. He held on to the word of God, the word of promise. He understood that in order for the promise to continue to flow through Isaac, in order for his seed to be counted through Isaac, he knew that in order for that to happen, Isaac would need to be alive. His only son of promise, he needed to be alive. And so he trusted that, okay, God, I know you told me to offer him as a burnt offering. I'm about to do that. My mind is set to obey you. We're doing that. And so if your promises are true, and I believe they're true because you're not a God who lies. You're not a guy who a God who reneges on his promises. In order for that to happen, I know that somehow, some way, my son is going to be resurrected. And so... This man, Abraham, we saw some lapses in his faith in the past. But right now, right now, we see that his trust in God is really strong at this point. And one question I want to pose to to all of us is, will we trust God when we don't understand exactly what he's doing? Abraham didn't understand exactly what he was doing. All he knew is that his seed will be counted through or in Isaac, this son of promise. And now he wants me to sacrifice him, to offer him as a burnt offering. I don't understand, but, but Lord, I trust you. What about us? Will we trust God in that same way when we don't understand what is going on in our lives? When we don't understand why are we going through so much trauma and junk in our lives? Will we continue to trust God? I would encourage you to do what Abraham did. Yes, he trusted God. He trusted God because he held on to the promises of God. He held on to the word of God. And so I would encourage you to hold on to God's word. Even when you don't understand what's going on, hold on to God's word. Even when it seems like that heat is turning up in your life. Hold on to the word of God. Hold on to the promises of God. Hold on to the character of God, what he revealed about himself. Hold on to his attributes. You know that he is good. You know that he is holy. You know that that he desires what is best for you. Hold on to the word of God like Abraham did. I like what one Bible scholar says. He says, faith does not demand explanations. Faith rests on promises. In verse 6 in Genesis 22, it says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. And so here we see another parallel between Jesus and Isaac. Because we see here that Isaac, the sacrifice, he carried the wood of the burnt offering. 
And in the same manner, the scripture tells us that Jesus carried his crossbar of his cross, the wooden cross. That is until he became too weak physically to carry it. And then some man by the name of Simon of Cyrene was called upon to bear or carry his cross for him. But yet and still we see this parallel, parallel number four, verses seven and eight. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire, which is probably maybe a fire pot that was filled with burning coals, or, or maybe he had a torch. And so he saw that, the fire. He saw the wood. In fact, he was carrying the wood. But he said, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham, his father, said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And so here we see that Isaac had this question about what was going on. All he knows is that it's just him and his father. They're going up to this mountain. They're going to offer uh, this burnt offering. They're going to worship the Lord. But he had a question. What is going on here? You see, that's. Something that is different because we've been talking about parallels between Abraham and God, the father and between Isaac and God, the son, Jesus. But but here we see a contrast, something different, because where Isaac had a question about what was going on, Jesus had no question about what his role was. You see, with God the Father and with God the Son, speaking of Jesus, there is no question that Jesus would be the sacrifice. And so Jesus went into it with eyes wide open, so to speak. He went into the situation with a full understanding of his purpose. And that was different, of course, from what was going on with Isaac in Genesis 22. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, just to show you that Jesus was aware. It says, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. And what we're reading tonight, by the way, in in Genesis 22, this is an example of it being written of him. It was a prophetic picture being painted, but Jesus knew that. And he says, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Speaking of Judas. So there's nothing ever good said about Judas, by the way. In fact, when Jesus picked the 12, he said, I chose 12 of you and one of you is a devil. He knew that from the beginning. And so Judas was never saved. But Jesus allowed him to be a part of the group in order to carry out the purpose, the plan. But that doesn't mean that God made Judas do what he did. Judas still had free will. But God being sovereign allowed even the evil free will that Judas used, he even used that to accomplish his purpose because God works all things together for good. And so here you see God's sovereignty where the son of man was, he was going to be crucified as it is written, as was planned from eternity. But at the same time, you see free will. You see the free will of Judas who decided himself to betray. And God worked all of that out. And so when we talk about the free will of man and when we talk about the sovereignty of God, they are not exclusive of each other. 
They do not contradict each other, but they are parallel. They work together. And only a sovereign, eternal God can make both the free will of man and his sovereignty work together perfectly. Only a God like the one we serve can do that. In John chapter 12, verse 27, it says, now my soul is troubled. Again, showing that Jesus knew exactly what his purpose was. His soul was troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from this moment, this time. He said, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. You see, just moving on to Abraham, moving on to his answer to his son. He said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so his statement is prophetic. Because it hints at the fact that Jesus, the lamb of God, will be provided to die for the sin of the world. Even John the Baptist said this in John chapter 1 verse 29. Because it said the next day John, speaking of John the Baptist or John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Abraham was speaking prophetically here. Maybe he didn't even know it. But he said God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering. In Genesis 22, verse 9, it says, Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there, and he placed the wood in order, and he bound or he tied up Isaac his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now remember Isaac's age. This is not a baby. This is not a, a toddler. That's why I told you to remember his age. Because it could be between 20 and 30. But even if he were a teenager, he he would still be stronger than somebody who's over 100 years old. But here we see another parallel between Isaac and Jesus. Because Isaac fell in line with his father's will. In other words, he, he was submissive. He allowed Abraham, this man who's over 100 years old, he had to allow him to tie him up and lay him on the altar. Upon the wood. Look at that submission. And of course we know how that parallels Jesus. Because Jesus too was submissive to. And he was obedient to the will of the father. He did not resist. In fact John 10 uh, verses 17 and 18 says. Therefore my father loves me. Because I lay down my life. That I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. Submitting his, his life submitting to the will of the father he says i have power to lay it down and i have power to take it again this command i have received from my father so isaac didn't resist his father's will in this moment neither did jesus resist the will of god the father but how about us do we resist the will of the father when it comes to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to god because Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you, therefore, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so are we being, are we being a, a person who is resisting the will of God? 
who wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Or are we being submissive to the will of the father? Just like Isaac was to his father, just like Jesus was to God, the father. Verses 10 and uh, 11 and 12, it says, and Abraham He stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. Look at the context. Your only son from me. So this angel of the Lord called Abraham's name twice. We see that often in the Bible. You know, when the Lord calls somebody's name twice and what that shows is that something important is about to be said or or that an important matter is about to be addressed. And so he he got Abraham's attention and Abraham responded positively, positively. So good job, Abraham, in this instance. Doing a good job throughout, by the way. And so based on this context in verse 12, especially, we can see that this is no normal angel, that that this angel of the Lord is more than a normal angel. We see here another example of a Christophany, an example of the pre-incarnate Christ, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord prevented Abraham from following through on offering Isaac. What this shows is that it was never God's plan or or perfect will for Abraham to follow through with sacrificing his son. Remember, he was testing them, bringing out the best in him. He did this to test Abraham's faith. He also did this to paint a prophetic picture of what he would do in regard to his son in the future. And so here we see that the picture is now complete. The picture that God wanted to paint, this prophetic picture is now complete. And also Abraham passed the test. So we saw a couple things happen here. And so God intervened. The angel of the Lord intervened and stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac, from going all the way through with it. But God, the father, The God of the Bible, he would not hold back. 2,000 years later, he would not hold back his only begotten son. He would, of course, follow through on his plan to sacrifice Jesus, to pour his wrath upon the son. This man of faith, Abraham, passed with flying colors. His actions proved that he feared God. His actions prove that his faith in God was real. It was genuine. In James 2, verses 21 through 23, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And so, first of all, um, we're not, of course, saved by works. We're justified. We're saved uh, by faith or trust that we put in Jesus Christ. But in order for that faith from human point of view to be seen as real, 
the works needed to match up. And so Abraham's works, his obedience matched the faith that he said he had. God knew all along that he was going to pass this test. God knew all along what a what a, a faithful man he was, what a man of faith Abraham was, because he's an eternal, omniscient God. So it says God, if he knew all along because he's eternal, because he knows all things, then then why does it say, why does it say now I know you fear God as if he didn't know? See, there's a difference between knowing intellectually and knowing by experience. So so here God already knew that he was going to pass. But now he is going through the experience with Abraham. So what God knew intellectually, he also knows by experience as he went through it in time with Abraham. And what about us when we go through our tests that God sends our way? You know, God, of course, he knows all along how we're going to respond. He knows if we're going to pass or fail. But but we need to see it. We need to see how we're going to respond. It helps us to see how far more we need to grow. It also helps us to see how much we have grown so far. But But look at Abraham's devotion to the Lord. Because could you imagine giving up something or someone that's precious to you, although you waited 25 years for that person or for that thing? And now being told that, okay, you have to give it up. You you waited all this time, but now you have to give it up. He was devoted to the Lord. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so this shows that he was way more devoted to God than he was to his son as much as he loved his son and waited so long for him to come. And so besides Abraham's faith and high reverence for God, we see that he was totally devoted to the Lord. But what about us? What is our devotion level to God? What is our devotion level to the Lord? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to set aside for God? That's something for us to think about, to to, to really meditate on. In verse 13, Genesis 22, it says, And Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and there behind him was a ram or a male sheep. It was caught in a thicket, this dense growth of shrubbery or small trees. It was caught. By its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So here we see a parallel number six between Isaac and, and Jesus. So here and in verses four and five in Genesis 22, we see a clear picture of the resurrection. And so let's read. All the way through Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19, because before I only put 17 up there on purpose. But in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said and Isaac, your seed shall be called or counted, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in the figurative sense. 
And so according to verse 4, if you go back to verse 4 of Genesis 22, Abraham, Isaac, and the two servants, they made it to the land of Moriah. Keep up with the numbers. They made it to the land of Moriah on the third day. All that time, Isaac was as good as dead in Abraham's mind. So throughout that journey, throughout that one, two, third day, Isaac is dead to Abraham because he knows he's going to sacrifice his son or he thinks he's going to carry it all the way through. But now here. On this third day, Isaac's life has been spared. And so it is like his resurrection. And so this is that parallel of the resurrection between Isaac and Jesus. Because in like manner, we know that Jesus, who actually died, he was resurrected, the Bible says, on the third day. In verse 14, it says, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so the Lord will provide in Hebrew is Yahweh Yerah. And some pronounce it as Jehovah Jireh, which is one of the compound names of the Lord. Or Yahweh, Jehovah. We don't really know how to pronounce it because there were no uh, vowels in the original text. And, they, and the Jews, they really respected. They had this high reverence for the name of the Lord. But, but Yahweh or Jehovah, it, it speaks of God as eternal, self-existent, unchanging, and self-sufficient. See, Yahweh was also the covenant name of the God of Israel. But one thing I want to share with you is not only does Yahweh Yerah mean the Lord will provide, it can also mean the Lord will see. So in other words, the Lord will see to it. And so he sees something needed to be provided and the Lord, he's going to see to it. The Lord will provide. And so according to one source, the seeing that is implied here is a kindly, friendly, interested seeing. It's a seeing that cares and sympathizes and provides for the need that it sees. And God's vision issues in provision. The Lord will provide Yahweh, Yerah. And in the mount of the Lord or in Moriah, that is where Jehovah will see. It or he shall be seen. According to verse 14, the second part of that. In other words, this is where the Lamb of God is going to be provided. That is on Calvary or Golgotha on that hill, which is located on the peak of Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide the sacrifice there. Verses 15 through 18, then the angel of the Lord, he called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld or kept back your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you or multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven or sky. And as the sand, which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess or capture the gate of their enemies. That is conquer them as, or, yeah, that is conquer them in other words. And so when we talk about the gate of the city, the, the, that was the center of power in the cities. And so the descendants, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, they're going to conquer 
their enemies. In verse 18, in your seed, ultimately the seed is Christ. So in, ultimately in Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God confirmed the promise to Abraham after he obeyed and passed this test that God had put before him. So Abraham, in verse 19, returned to his young men. And they rose and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And so obviously, although it doesn't mention Isaac returning with Abraham to the young men, obviously Isaac returned as well because he's alive. However, he's not mentioned here. And it's very interesting of why uh, me and, and other, you know, some Bible scholars, you know, believe that, that he wasn't mentioned here as well, because it's going to paint a beautiful picture. And so I don't want to talk about that until we get to Genesis chapter 24, Lord's will. But there's a prophetic picture that's being painted uh, with Isaac not being mentioned here just yet. But again, he'll be mentioned in Genesis 24. And when you see the topic of 24, wow, it, it's just beautiful. And, and you can just see it all fall into place. But what happened on that mountain in the land of Moriah was a blessing. We see it as a blessing for both Abraham and Isaac. Because Abraham got to keep his son. And he also did not have to explain how and why he killed his son to Sarah. That, uh, could you imagine him going back to his wife and telling her that he killed their son? And so he didn't have to explain that. He got to keep his son. What a blessing this is. And Isaac was blessed because he got to keep his life because uh, a, ram, uh, a male sheep or a ram was sacrificed in his place. And like Isaac, we too ought to be thankful because the Lamb of God died in our place. For we have all sinned, the Bible tells us, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've all fallen short of his perfect standard. And as a result, the scriptures tell us that we are deserving of death. We are deserving of the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible tells us in the letter to the Ephesians that we were all children of wrath before coming to Christ. Why? That is because when we sin, we have offended a holy God. We have offended a righteous and a holy judge. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for us because the sin issue needed to be dealt with. Justice needed to be carried out. A God of justice, a holy God has to deal with sin. And so humanity without Jesus doing what he accomplished as the Lamb of God, humanity is in a hopeless state. We're bound and we're ready to be put to death. We are tied up. We're bound just like Isaac was ready to be killed. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, stepped in in our place. Became our substitutionary atonement. He stepped in our place, died in our place. But this Lamb of God, he took the wrath of God upon himself so that we would not have to face it. And so God had this plan to enact justice. He had this plan to offer mercy and forgiveness of sin. He had this plan to offer salvation to all. All at the same time. All through this Lamb of God, through Jesus Christ, through God the Son. And when we think about all that 
Jesus has done for us. When we think about that substitutionary sacrifice, that price that he paid for us, there really is no reason for any human being to go to hell. There's no reason for a person to do that. But the person who rejects God's offer of forgiveness in Christ, the person who rejects God's offer of salvation and reconciliation, they remain condemned. They remain guilty and on his or her way to hell. But the rest of us who believe, praise God, if you're a believer, praise God, because you should thank the Lord because the Lord, you know him as by experience, you know him as your provider Be- because our God, he-, he provided the perfect sacrifice for us on Calvary or Golgotha. He provided the greatest gift of all. And there is no gift, by the way, that compares with Jesus. And I received some bad gifts in my life. I remember being younger. One gift I received was a remote control car with the string attached. And my buddy, he got this fancy remote control car. He's just driving everywhere. And I, you know, I got my little car on a string, you know, put it, you know, this way, reverse, you know, couldn't even turn the thing. You had to reverse for it to turn a little bit and then go straight. But, but we see this greatest gift of all in Jesus Christ. Because God is our provider. He provided that for us. Yahweh Yerah. Or some would say Jehovah Jireh. No gift compares with Jesus. In the famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See that? The son is a gift. The father provided. We're talking about God being a provider. He provided the son, the greatest gift of all, the lamb of God, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. He provided us with the gift of life. He provided us with the heavenly home. The Lord will provide. He's provider. But, but here's the thing. If God provided his only begotten son to be sacrificed in our place and on our behalf. The question is, will he withhold anything from us that we need? Will he withhold anything that is good for us? Think about that. He already gave us his best. His only begotten son, the lamb of God. He gave us his best. So, so, so what good thing will he withhold from us? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him or along with him also freely give us all things? The same God who did not spare Jesus, but delivered him up for us, provided him as a sacrifice for us. How shall he not along with Jesus Think about this. Also freely give us all things. So so what is it that you need? What is it that you need that you are worrying about? He already gave us the greatest gift of all. So what else is he going to withhold from us if it's good for us? If it's something we really need, what will he withhold from us? What is it that you need tonight? Is it peace? 
Is that something you need? Well, if he gave you Jesus, then your peace, his peace is available to you. Is his joy something that you need? Do you need your joy renewed? Do you need your joy to be restored? Or maybe it's income. If the Lord knows that you need it, if he knows that it's good for you, he's going to provide the income that you need. Why? He's already given you his best. So he's not going to withhold anything from you that once again is good for you. Maybe some people need security tonight or or maybe there's some people who needs a little bit of patience tonight. Well, well, God has all that you need. And won't withhold it from you or you need some type of understanding of the word of God so that you can get to know him better. And and that's a great need that all of us have is to know God better. He will not withhold that need from you. Maybe it's some wisdom that you need. You need to know how to maneuver around a certain certain situation or circumstance. Is it wisdom that you need? God is like, hey, I'm your provider. Whatever you need, I got it. I gave you my best. I set a pattern that I will give you what you need. And, And the greatest need that all of us have really is salvation. If he provided that, then he'll provide everything else. So if you have Jesus, then you have all you need. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry that our needs are not going to be met because we serve a true and a living God. We serve Yahweh Yurah. We serve Jehovah Jireh. We serve a God who will provide. As the worship team comes up, I just want to share a quote with you. It's something that the Bible teachers shared in one of my Bible college class. Classes. And the quote says, if I don't have it, I don't need it. Only after I have it, do I know I need it because I have it. We have Jesus. Jesus was provided, which means that we know we need Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're about to go into communion. Perfect study for communion, Um, a time of reflection, a time of examination. Ask the Lord if there's any sin you need to confess. If he shows it to you, confess it. It's a time of remembrance, remembering Jesus's sacrifice, the bread, the elements are there, the, the front, the back, the bread or the cracker represents his body that was broken for us. The juice represents his blood that was shed for us. And so I'll say a quick prayer. And as you feel led, go to the back or front, um, get the elements, take them back to your seats, uh, pray between you and the Lord or with your spouse, partake. Father, we thank you uh, for your perfect sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for uh, giving up your life, for allowing your blood to be shed for us. And Lord God, we thank you for the resurrection. I do pray over the elements that you bless them. I pray for forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that you bless this time of of just communion with you, Lord. May you be glorified. And may you bless these people, protect them on their way back home. Bless their week. Use them in a mighty way. Give them peace that their needs will be provided. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.